second reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 to 12, and that's on page 13 in your booklet. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. This is the word of the Lord. Good to be here in Kubel again. Lovely to see you. Um, I've got a really simple message this morning, and it's this. Uh, the way that we live as Christians really matters. If we claim to follow Christ, the way we conduct ourselves as Christian men and Christian women, it really, really matters. If I think about the, the Christians who have impacted me mo- most in my life, It's not the people who have known the most theology. It's the people who have actually walked the talk. My heroes of the faith are not people who have written the theological textbooks. They're the people who have really modeled to me how to live as a Christian. You know, they're, they're humble and they are godly and they are gentle and they are kind and they are loving and they are sacrificial. But, you know, actions speak louder than words sometimes. I remember as a new Christian 28 years ago, uh, walked into a church, I'd never been to church before, I, I became a Christian, walked into church as a Christian. And to be honest, I was not impressed by the music because I didn't know any of the songs. And to be honest, I found the sermon a bit tedious, a bit repetitive, a bit long. But what blew me away were the people. These people had this love for each other which was just beyond explanation. And these people were really striving to be different to the way that everybody else was living. I love this quote by David Jackman, it's on the screen. The watching world is not hugely impressed by emotional hype and extremism. But it is attracted by ordinary people living ordinary lives who demonstrate extraordinary godliness seen in love. And that is true. 
The watching world does not see what happens inside this building, and they don't hear the music that we play, and they don't watch our connect groups, all our programs, but they see us. They see you. They see me. They see that the way that we live. They see the choices that we make, the language that we use. And by our daily lives, by our behavior, we have the privilege of commending the gospel. Do you see that in verse, verse 12? So your daily life, the way that you live each day may win the respect of outsiders. Those outside the church family, they'll be amazed at the way that we live. That's the privilege that you and I have, living different lives now to commend the gospel. I was at uh, Sam's soccer match a few months ago now, and uh, there's these two women talking. And they were talking about this church in the area, and they were just blown away that this church provided new meals for these new mums for about six weeks. And it suddenly dawned on me that was our church. And people noticed that. I met somebody else who said, oh, there's that church in Kirby, and they, they've got a real heart for the marginalized and the poor and the needy. And they, they've noticed that. People notice when we make decisions which are full of integrity, when people notice when we speak the truth, people notice when we handle conflict well, people notice when we forgive each other well, people notice when we invite others into our homes and we show hospitality, people notice all those things. It matters how we live. And of course the opposite is also true. When the watching world sees a church which is fighting and divided and full of gossip and slander and backbiting, they say, oh, I thought you guys were Christians. See, it matters how we live because the world sees, and it matters how we live because God sees. God, our Heavenly Father, He sees everything. He knows everything. He calls us His beloved children. Because as Christians, we're not just people who know the gospel. We're called to adorn the gospel and to live the gospel. And to bring glory and honor to our Father who we claim to love. And that's why Paul's letters are always focused on the practical as well as the theological. Because I hope you know this, that, that your theology must show itself in your behavior. Your belief drives your behavior. What you know about God must show itself in the way that you live. So we're in 1 Thessalonians again, and Paul is writing this, this little church in Greece. He's been there for a few weeks. He preached the gospel. People became Christians. He was driven out overnight, but he loves this church. He is desperate to find out how this church is going. Are they still trusting Jesus? And so he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to, to encourage them and to strengthen them in their faith. We have that honor and that privilege of encouraging each other in our faith. And Timothy comes back with a great report. They are doing well. They're still believing. And Paul says, it is great you're believing, but what about your behavior? It is wonderful that you're still trusting Jesus, but what about the way you're living? See, believing in Jesus is not just about getting your ticket to heaven. It's about living godly, different, holy lives now. Here's our big point. Live a holy life pleasing to God. But Paul says in verse 1, do you see it? As for the other matters, brothers and sisters, church, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. 
as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Uh, that word to live in verse 1 is literally walk. It's a great word. How to walk in a way that pleases God. It captures the idea that day by day, step by step, in all the different seasons of life, in all the different spheres of life, you're walking in a way, you're conducting your lives in a way that honors your heavenly Father. And verse 1 is actually quite strong. It's actually a command. It's an imperative. You must live this way. Not an optional extra. The word for instructed in verse 1 is a military word. It's the, the commanding officer commanding his army cadets. Do this. We ask you and we plead with you literally in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. God calls us. God demands us to live a holy life pleasing to him. In 1842, a, a book was published. It was called Practice of Piety. Practice of Piety, directing a Christian how to walk that it may please God. Not those books. They'll come later, Ken. So this book written in 1842 is now in its 72nd edition. You can still buy it. But I don't reckon many evangelicals would read it. It's actually written by an Anglo-Catholic guy who takes purity and piety seriously. Because we hate being confronted, don't we? And we almost hate being told what we should do. And whenever we preach on morality or purity, I feel like I'm treading on eggshells because, hey, I'm going to offend somebody. But actually... The most important thing is that we don't offend God. See, Paul calls us to live a holy life. That's the word used in verse 3. It is God's will, God's desire, God's want for your life that you should be sanctified. And that word sanctified is the same root as holy. You're set apart for God. You are different from the world and you're different for your Savior. You ever ask the question, what's God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? And you think, oh, is it God's will that I live in Sydney or London? Is it God's will that I buy or I rent? Is it God's will that I am a lawyer or a teacher? A and God is concerned about all those things. Of course he is, because God is concerned about the detail. But God's deep will, God's overriding will for your life is there in verse 3. He wants you to be sanctified. He wants you to be holy. He wants you to be set apart for your God. Your work life is holy, your family life is holy, your leisure life is holy, your money, your thoughts, your actions, your language, all set apart for God. And we sing about it. I think we're going to sing it this morning. Take my life and let it be. We're singing that. Take my life and let it be. Consecrated. Same word, set apart for you, Lord. Remember the bridge? Here I am, all of me. Every sphere of my life is set apart for you, God. I want to honor you in every area of my life. So why? Why does God call us to live a holy life? Why does God demand that of us? And the beautiful thing here is it's not about rules. It's all about relationship. We heard about it in Leviticus 19. Be holy, says God. Why? Because I am holy. 1 Peter, be holy because I am holy. God is saying, 
Holiness is part of my very being. I'm a holy God. I'm a separate God. I'm an other type of God. It's my very being is holy. And if you call yourself a child of mine, I want you to be like me. I find that liberating. Not rules, but relationship. It's like with my kids. You know, I can say to my kids, brush your teeth every night. And they say, why? I can say to my kids, don't jump off the wardrobe. They say, why? I can say, don't hit each other with a hairdryer. They say, why? See, the why is more important than the what. If you understand the why, then you get the what. Why are we called to live a holy life? Because we're children of God. Because we've been redeemed, we've been bought at a price. He calls us his children, and we want to live as his children. So living this holy life is the best way to live. It's the right way to live. It's best for you. It's best for me. It's best for other people. And most importantly, it's best for our God. And all these competing voices in the world telling you how to have the successful marriage and how to have the best career and how to be the, have the best body and how to be content. All these voices, voices, voices. You need to hear the voice of God saying, be holy, be holy, be holy. Now, the thing about this command to live a holy life is that it's a lifelong command. You can never say you've made it. I love Paul's pastoral wisdom here. See that in verse 1? He said, we told you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Good on you, church. Well done, Thessalonian church. You are living good lives. You're doing really, really well. But, or now, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Keep on going. Keep striving. Keep growing. Keep being different. There's always a room for improvement, isn't there? Someone said that the room for improvement is the biggest room in the universe for Christians. And I love the fact that we've got people in this church who have been Christians for 30, 40, 50 years, and they would still say that they are growing in their godliness and there's still room for improvement. At the AGM last week, you saw Peter Bradhurst stand up. Peter's 82. Been a Christian for 55, 60 years. And he just oozes this humility, and he always keeps on saying, I'm such a wretched sinner, God's still got some great work to do in me. I find that inspiring. A man at 8 a.m. at Neutral Bay is called Brian Turnbull. He lives in chronic pain, serious pain every single day. But the more I've got to know him, the more he oozes godliness and he just strives to honor his God in every sphere of his life. We're called to be holy. That's my big point. I could recommend three books for you to read. J.C. Ryle, Holiness, is a great book. It's heavy, but it's worth a read. If you want something a bit lighter, read Jerry Bridges, The Pursuit of Holiness. If you want something even lighter still, read Vaughan Roberts, Distinctives. But just pick up a book and work on your godliness. Strive to be more and more like your God. Now, Paul highlights two areas, and we need to look at those this morning, because they're just as relevant today as they were 2,000 years ago. The first area is sex. He says, live a, a holy life pleasing to God in sexual purity. That's the mark that you're a child of God. 
verse 3, it is God's will, you should be sanctified. That you should, you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own bodies in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust, like the pagans who don't know God. And in, in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Let me just read those verses as a positive. I think it makes a stronger case. He said, it's God's will you should be holy and set apart for me. That means please pursue actively to be pure and godly in the area of sex. Please learn to control your body in a way that's holy and honorable. As children who do know God, learn. Please learn to control your lust. And because we love other people so much, please don't wrong other people in the area of your sexual conduct. You see, it's hard in the negative, isn't it? But a loving father wants to affirm you that, that sex is a beautiful gift from God. Sex is a good gift of creation. That intimacy between a, a man and a woman in a context of marriage is beautiful. And when a husband and a wife love each other well, it's beautiful. And again, I think of the couple in this church who have been married for 55 years. They're still loving each other and being faithful to each other. But sex can be dangerous. We live in a world where we've got pornographic ads on billboards and porn is being channeled to, into, into our homes all the time. And we live in a world where prostitution is almost legal. And we live in a world where it's almost embarrassing to talk about celibacy. And extramarital affairs are sadly all too common. And I know it's difficult, but as, go as God's people, we're called to be sanctified. The word there in verse 3 for sexual immorality is the word porneia. And it's not just adultery. It's not just premarital sex or extramarital sex. It, it's sexual sin in any context outside of marriage. And the word for avoid is actually a beautiful word. It says, take a wide berth. That's, that's a better translation. Don't go near it. Don't flirt with it. Just avoid it. And he gives us some practical ways to do it. Verse 4, learn to control your body. Learn, whether you're single or married, what goes into your mind, what you look at. Learn. Teach yourself to honor God with your body. It's a beautiful word, honorable, in verse 4. It means it's esteemed, it's valuable. Your body is valuable. Do you know that? Your body is valuable. God made you. God loves you. So honor him with the way that you use your body. It says, not in passionate lust like the pagans who don't know God. And again, let's flip that around. We do know God. We're his children, and so we control our lusts. We've been bought at a price. We're redeemed. And God wants us, longs for us to please him in this area. You know, sadly, as a church, sometimes I think that we are quick to judge the world. We sit here and we judge the morality of the world. People who don't claim to know God. We've got a right to do that. But we do know God and we're his children and we've got the spirit living in us. And so, of course, we're called to be sanctified and pure with our bodies. So please don't cross the boundaries. No trespassing, says Paul, verse 6. In this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Seen those signs saying, no trespassing, somebody else's property. It's the same with sexual morality. It's, 
you're, you're trespassing on somebody else's territory. When we are unfaithful or when we are having lustful thoughts about somebody else that is not your spouse, you're wronging somebody else. And it is quite harsh in verse 6, but we need to hear it. The Lord will punish those who commit such sins. I know we don't like hearing that. I know we like hearing that the Lord understands. And Of course there's forgiveness. Please let me hear this. Of course there is forgiveness. No matter what you have done in the past, no matter how far you have fallen, the blood of Jesus covers that. And he sits here this morning free, redeemed, forgiven. Do not be defined by your past. But your past failings are not an excuse for your present godliness. And the amazing thing is that this call to be pure, we're not left alone, are we? Verse 8. God has given us his Holy Spirit. The Spirit lives in us to equip us and empower us to strive to be pure. Really simple. Celibacy outside of marriage and fidelity within marriage. And if we lived like this, then maybe the world would suddenly take notice. to be holy in brotherly love. Verse 9, about your love for one another. We don't need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. In fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you to do so more and more. That's an amazing commendation, isn't it? Well done, church. You are loving each other well. You love all the believers. Remember chapter 1 of Thessalonians and, and the, the surrounding nations are saying, have you heard about that church in Thessalonica? They love each other. Are people saying that about us? Have you heard about that church in Kirby? They, they really love each other. Remember that two commandments, love God with all your whole heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And that word for love, it's, it's not just an intellectual love, it's a practical love. Thirteen times in the New Testament with commands is to love one another. 1 John chapter 3, we know we pass from death to life because we love one another. Anyone who doesn't love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You've been taught by God, he says, to love each other. Modeled by Jesus, it's a work of the Spirit. The word in verse 9 is Philadelphia. Friendship, deep affection, loving each other as family, as brothers and sisters. We're called to love each other, not just the people that we like, or not just people like us, but we're called to love each other. Yes, those who are hard to love. Yes, those who have hurt us. Yes, those who are unlike us. And again, this church in Thessalonica is doing really, really well. Good on you, he says, verse 10. You do love them, but we ask you to do so more and more and more. And interestingly, the, ver- the w- word for love in verse 10 is different to the word for love in verse 9. Verse 9 is a Philadelphia, a brotherly love. Verse 10 is the agape love, the selfless, sacrificial kind of love. I do want to say to us, Church by the Bridge, well done. Well done, Church. I do think that we are loving each other well. I really do. I keep hearing amazing, amazing stories of sacrificial love in action, people who have spent... Vast amounts of time listening, loving, 
caring, providing meals to each other, sitting with each other through operations and through surgeries. I've heard stories of people babysitting each other's kids. I've heard stories of people giving money to others of people in need. I've heard great stories of people loving each other well. That is amazing. Good on you, church, by the church. But we could do this more and more and more. I heard a tragic story of a lady who attends our church, and she became a Christian five years ago, actually from a Jewish background. And she became a Christian. I love church by the bridge. I love coming to hear the sermons, and I love singing. And then she said this. She said, but I've never felt so lonely all my life. I feel like I come to church, and I love hearing, but I feel like I just don't belong. And that is tragic, isn't it? That is really, really tragic. So 9.45, if this church is full of little cliques, or the sporty group, and the new mums group, and the trendy group, and the older people group, and the city workers group, and the rich people group, this can be quite an isolating Congress of divides. We're called to love each other sacrificially, selflessly. Open your home, share your family, share your burdens, share your joys. Hospitality should just be a non-negotiable. We shouldn't have to organize tables for eight because it should just happen naturally. Extravagant, costly love, and yes, even loving your enemies. Jesus said, love your enemies. Love those who have hurt you. Care for them well. Love the person who's hard to love, the socially awkward, the demanding people. Love them, love them, love them. And you can't just do that here on a Sunday. Mother Teresa, who said, not all of us can do great things. But we can all do small things with great love. We can all do small things with great love. There are some amazing examples in our church. I think Keith and Sarah Condie just love it. People incredibly, incredibly well. Kate Jones is extraordinary, just the way her capacity to love this huge number of people. Rob and Viv Chapman, extraordinary couple who are just sacrificial in their time. Brenna Denton, who just has a single lady who's just constantly cooking and babysitting for all kinds of people because she wants to love people in need. And that gospel-centered love is not something that we can program into our calendar. It's a work of the Spirit. If we claim to be Christians, please grow in your love for one another. Now, the application is quite extraordinary, verse 11. How are we going to do this? Verse 11, make it your ambition to live a quiet life. That's not a motivational verse, is it? But it is actually. Literally make it your ambition to lead a, a restful life. Be less frenetic. Be less frantic. Be less busy. Have time for people. Love the simple life. Stop the comparison. Stop the jealousy. Uh, jealousy and ambition can destroy love for one another. Stop being so busy that you haven't got time for people. Live a quiet life, minding your own business, verse 11. 
Stop meddling, stop gossiping, stop the obsessive interest in other people's lives. Just get on with living your own simple life, loving other people well. And work hard with your hands, don't be lazy. Not rocket science, he says, when you as a Christian just get on with living a simple life, honouring Jesus, then then you'll get to love each other well. Remember the quote? The watching world is not hugely impressed by emotional hype and extremism. It's attracted by ordinary people living ordinary lives who demonstrate extraordinary godliness seen in love. And what struck me this week is that the early church, the Thessalonians, they had no buildings. They had no sound systems and no computers and no budgets and no programs, but they had people. And they were known as a people who were striving to live differently. And that's my desire for this church. Forget our programs, forget our buildings, forget all that sort of stuff. The most important thing is that you are living a life which is honouring to your God. Because people notice that. And God sees it. So maybe take a moment today just to talk to somebody you know best. Friend, spouse, family member, say, how am I going? And ask them, give them permission to say, what's one area of my life? What's one area where I'm not living to please God? Because other people see it in you much more clearly than we often see it in ourselves. We're going to spend time now remembering that we have failed. We don't live these godly lives. We, We are sinners with a great Savior. We're going to take some bread and some juice together as a reminder that that 2,000 years ago, God knew us and he knew our present and our future and our past failings and he forgave all of them as his blood was shed. So what we're going to do is we're going to say a confession together and then during the next song, the bread and the juice will come to you. If you're here this morning and you are a believer in Christ who loves Jesus, then take the bread, take the juice Hold on to it. We're going to eat and drink between the next two songs. So why don't we stand and we'll say this confession together and then we'll sing. So together. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all people, we acknowledge with shame the sins we have committed by thought, word, and deed, against your divine majesty, provoking most justly your wrath and indignation against us. We earnestly repent and are heartily sorry for all our misdeeds. Have mercy on us, most merciful Father. For your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake, forgive us all that is past and grant that from this time forward we may serve and please you in newness of life to the honour 